Yeah, good morning and welcome. Buenos dias y bienvenidos a todos, right? We have our Spanish congregation joining us um, here in second service today. Glad for them. Uh, we are moving through the book of Galatians in chunks this morning, and so today we come to the end of Galatians chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, and our scripture reading is going to be on the screen in front of you, Galatians 3.19 through chapter 4, verse 7. Here we go. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you all, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I hope you can say amen to that. That's God's word this morning. So we're moving through the book of Galatians, and what we've seen so far is this. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a group of churches in the Roman state of Galatia, and in the book he's doing one thing. Paul is contending for the gospel. He is contending for the central message of Christianity, which is this. A person becomes right with God through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Paul is contending for that message because, as we've seen, there was in those churches in those days a high-pressure group of church lobbyists who were pressuring the Galatian Christians and telling them that in order to be really pleasing to God, what they really needed to believe in was not Christ plus nothing, but Christ plus cultural Judaism. And Paul is saying, no, 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 what makes you a Christian, what makes you pleasing to God is not being culturally Jewish. It's not celebrating Jewish festivals or following the dietary laws. What makes you pleasing to God is not how long or how short your hair is, whether you have hair at all, praise the Lord, right? Or what kind of clothes that you wear or whether you wear makeup or jewelry or not which are things other people obviously try to smuggle into Christianity at times. But what makes you a Christian is faith in Christ plus nothing. Now, 
That's what he's been contending for. But we've got to ask now, why is he contending for it? Why is Paul going to all this trouble to fight and wrestle and, and, and put his reputation on the line for that truth? Why? So far, three whole chapters of difficult and complicated stuff and some obscure Bible references. Well, I'll tell you why. Paul is contending for this truth because he knows what you ought to know, that on the other side of this hill of Bible truth is a mountain of spiritual experience that he's going to show you. On the other side of this deep and complex teaching is an ocean of an encounter with the very heart of God for you and me today. In this, in this extraordinary passage now, with the ground uh, cleared, with the table set, Paul is ready to pull us in to the most revolutionary place he can find, with the most revolutionary word he can think of. Paul is summing up the heart of God and the Christian faith this morning with one word, which we're going to look at in depth. And it's this word. It's the word adoption. It's the word adoption. It's the word that would have blown the minds of his hearers in those days. And it's the word that can blow open the doors of your heart today as well. So let's ask now, what is Christian adoption? Hmm? What does it mean to be adopted by God? What does it do to us? And finally, how do we get it? Let's look, ask these questions of a text and see if we can't get some answers. All right, let's begin here. Number one, first question of our passage what is the concept of Christian adoption? Let's look at verse 4 here. It says, but when the fullness of time came, it says God did something. What's that word there, God? What? Sent. Yeah, it's the word sent. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive something, the adoption of sons. And Paul is saying now, through the gospel, there is a specific action of the Trinity going on in the world. What is it? Well, Paul is saying that the Father has sent the Son into the world to redeem it so that we, those redeemed, could receive, he says, adoption as sons, or literally in the Greek, sonness. It's a cool word, cool word, cool term, sonness. In other words, Paul is saying once a person uh, becomes a Christian, once you put your faith in Jesus to become your, your liberator and your deliverer and your rescuer, now you instantly receive... A cosmic change of spiritual status. That's what you get. It's a cosmic change of spiritual status. And Paul uses two kinds of first century terms to describe a difference. There are two kinds of first century statuses. The first was a kind of a slave, a word he uses for slave here. Not how we think of slave, but it's the word doulos. And the doulos was a kind of a, a bond servant who labored and who, who worked hard and who slaved away his life to earn his keep from his owner. But in rare occasions when his owner, when his master, when the doulos, Losses master did not have a son to be an heir. And when the bond servant was beloved by the master, the master could pay an enormous sum of money and complete a legal transaction to elevate the status of the slave to the status of a son and then on to being an heir. And Francis Lyle, in his book, Slave Citizens and Sons, takes a look at and describes this process. He says, quote, The profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All his old debts were instantly canceled, and in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of this new family. On the one hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property, controlled his relationships, and had the rights of discipline. 
But on the other hand, the father was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. All right, so that's what adoption as sons mean. It's an instantaneous cosmic change of spiritual status, of elevated status from slave to son. And before we go any further, let me just sort of say this, give us a caveat here. Women, don't run from this language here. Don't run from it. If you change this phrase here to just adopted as children, then you miss out on the revolutionary aspect of what Paul is trying to do here because in most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. And so here in this passage, which would have been read out loud in a room to both men <coughs> excuse me, and women together, what Paul was doing was radically egalitarian. What Paul was doing by having this same term used of men and women in the same place, what he's doing is this. He's saying, women, the status you are not getting from your culture, you can get from God. The honor and respect and support and affirmation, the inheritance your culture denies you, you have in the gospel. See, it's amazing. Don't run from it. It would have knocked the hearers, particularly the men, out of their seats in that day. And by the way, God is, after all, pretty even-handed when it comes to doling out gender-specific references, because after all, every male in here who's part of God's family is also called, what, the bride of Christ. Congratulations, men, you know. We won't push the metaphor, make you try on a wedding dress. Thank God we all said... But we're the bride of Christ, man. So that's what adoption is, all right? Adoption, to go on, is a change in spiritual status. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Let's ask. Let's move on in the passage. It says, because you're sons. Now look what it says. God has, here's this word again, sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer slaves, but sons and heirs. All right. Now, this means this, that now just as God sent his son into the world, now there's a second sending that the Trinity is doing. Now as sons and daughters, now as heirs, we get, Paul is saying, what heirs get. And what do heirs get? Heirs get a what? Inheritance. Yeah, they get an inheritance. And Paul says this, it's the Holy Spirit God puts in your heart to get you to cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba is the Aramaic baby talk word for daddy. It's equivalent to our word, dada, or whatever else some of you get called as grandparents. You know, it's literally dada. You think, though, man, how is that an inheritance? How is that my inheritance? How? I mean, I I thought inheritance was supposed to make me feel wealthy, you know, make me feel rich or be rich. What kind of an inheritance is Aramaic baby talk? After all, well, Yeah, that's not the answer. All right. <laughs> if you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard from my friend Kevin York, who's a, the executive director of Every Nation Churches, and Kevin lives in Nashville. But years ago, when he pastored in Midland, Texas, his oldest daughter at the time, Amanda, who was 18, became pregnant out of wedlock with her boyfriend, Rick. And despite the difficult and scandalous element, obviously, to the story, the church was amazing, and they rallied around them and supported them dearly. And at the advice and counsel of their friends and family, Rick and Amanda got married and still married to this day. And a couple years later, they had uh, a second child of their own. But then one day, through Amanda's sister, Kevin's other daughter, uh, a girl named Ashley, uh, Ashley, who was working at an orphanage overseas in Ethiopia, 
told Rick and Amanda a story that would change their lives forever. Ashley told them the story of two little children, one named Abane and one named Hannah. And Abane was six years old at the time, and Hannah was one. And as far as they could tell from Abane's accounts, their mother was a witch doctor, based on the way she combed her hair and treated them. And when she became angry with him, the six-year-old boy, she attached, it's a little difficult to hear, but attached a razor blade to a stick and began to beat and to slice him repeatedly. And one day at the height of one of her incantations, she pushed the boy, pushed Abane into the fire and it burned the inside of his leg horribly. And it's scarred, but not from the burning. It's scarred because as his leg began to heal, the mother would come and begin to scrape the new flesh off with the razor blade. Yeah, over and over. And the little one-year-old girl, Hannah, became so malnourished and neglected that she would lay on the floor and scream so loud for so long that, that Abane, the brother, would have to hide and, and cover his ears. And one day, though, when they, one day they both woke up and found that the mother was gone, that she had abandoned them. And what does a little six-year-old boy do? What does a six-year-old Abane do? Well, he gets a rope. And he ties his sister to his back. And he ventures out into the streets of his village, going from church to church, looking for help. And one of the churches calls the police, and they figure out what's going on. And they take them off the streets and put them into the orphanage where Ashley York was working and had moved a half a world away to give her life in, serve, in service of these children. And Ashley then shares Abenez and Hannah's story back home with them, Amanda and Rick. And they remember what it was like to feel alone and a bit abandoned, but then what it was like to feel embraced and accepted and included in a family, and so they, their hearts feel compelled to adopt internationally, and they go and they raise tens of thousands of dollars to adopt not just one, but two children uh, internationally, and so uh, as they're, they're in the process of being approved, they begin to send pictures of themselves ahead over to Ethiopia for the, the children to be able to see until they can come and get them, and, and finally the adoption is approved, and the money's raised, and, and they, they travel over to Ethiopia, and the, the price has been paid to bring them home, and, and, and now they, and they go to the room, and Rick, the father, Rick walks into the room of the orphanage where Hannah and Abane were, and as Ricardo Flores, a big, hulking, bodybuilding Mexican mechanic, walked into the room of the orphanage, do you know what little Abane did? He ran across the room. He threw his arms around him and cried out, Daddy, Daddy. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, let me ask you, in that moment, do you think that that boy, Abane, do you think he felt rich? Yeah. Do you think he felt wealthy? Why? What was he experiencing in that moment? I'll, I'll tell you. It was the spirit of adoption causing him to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Oh, did he have any more money in his pocket? No. But what did he feel? He felt rich. Why? Because he had been brought in, adopted by a father who had elevated his status instantaneously. And the Bible tells you that's but a fraction of what you can have because of the spirit that's been put in your hearts today. Now, before we move on, let me just press you. Let me ask you, is this how you view Christianity? Is this how you view your relationship with God? Can you? Have you ever said to him, Abba, Dada, Daddy, Think, man, can I use that word? Yes. See, you can use it because Paul used it. Why? Because Jesus used it. Jesus himself called his father Abba, Dada. Do you know God like that? You can, and you should. You ask why? Oh, because of how and what? Knowing God like that will do to you 
It's just going to change you. So let's ask now, since we kind of already did. Number two, let's ask the second question. What does? What is adoption? What is this whole concept? What does it do to us in our hearts? Well, to answer that, what I want to do here is just push the pause button in Galatians and move over and look at a brief case study in the book of the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament. It's about a man named Zacchaeus that you may have heard of before. Zacchaeus experienced the power of acceptance and of adoption. And we meet this man, this little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus over in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and Zacchaeus' story begins like this. We're going to look at it briefly here, and Luke 19, verse 1, says that he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Stop for a second. Let me just give you some context here. Israel in the first century was actually a conquered colony under Roman military occupation. The Romans would levy heavy taxes on their colonies, both to impoverish their colonies, keeping them weak and defenseless, and of course, also to simultaneously enrich the Roman state itself. And the only people, therefore, who really ever lived in comfort in the Roman colonies were the soldiers the Romans who excuse me, the Romans who ruled them, and the tax collectors who were natives of the lands that the Romans conquered, who would extract the excessive taxes for Rome and additional tax money for themselves because they were backed, after all, by Roman soldiers. In a few verses, you're going to see the people calling this man Zacchaeus a sinner, which meant outcast, apostate, excluded, forbidden, shunned one. Tax collectors were excommunicated because they were seen as traitors to the nation, traitors to the law, traitors to God and to the state. And actually, Zacchaeus wasn't just any tax collector. The word Luke uses here for him is this. In the Greek, it's architalonis. It's the arch. It's the head tax collector. He was the big dog, (laughs) the chief guy who made the most, who took the most, who stole the most. Verse 3 says, and he, this man was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Pause. Why does he want to see Jesus? Why does Zacchaeus want to see him? Why would Zacchaeus A tax collector want to see a rabbi and not someone else. Why does he want to see this rabbi? I mean, after all, weren't rabbis teachers of the law, right? And didn't the law teach you to not steal and not impoverish others? Then why would Zacchaeus want to see a rabbi? Why would he want to go to this teacher? Well, to answer that, think of who Jesus traveled with. It was his group of disciples. And who was one of Jesus' disciples already? A man named Matthew, or Levi, who was a former tax collector. Matthew had left everything to follow Jesus. So you've got to ask, who was this rabbi, this teacher Jesus, who would accept the kind of person like Zacchaeus everyone else shunned? Zacchaeus had to find out. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw, they all grumbled. Here comes the word. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's a great story. But let's just point this out, and it's interesting to note. 
how an entire town, think about it, an entire town with all of their oppression of Zacchaeus, all of their resistance and hatred of him, could not keep one little man from oppressing them. They couldn't do it. For years, they'd scorn him, heap derision on him, ignored him. He couldn't go in their houses. They wouldn't go in his. And out of everything Jesus could have said to him, he says, I'm going to where? Your house today. See, Jesus was doing the very thing no one else would do. He was accepting him, accepting him. And in this one simple act of acceptance, the arch tax collector sold his possessions, made amends of those he had robbed. Can you see? In the end, it was the affection of Jesus Christ, not the brutality and moral force of a town that healed its worst sinner. See, all the force of judgment, all the force of reason and being right only made Zacchaeus dig his heels in. But against the overwhelming force of acceptance and affirmation, Zacchaeus was powerless. Understand? See, that's why things in groups in our nation like the religious right, like the moral majority, they ultimately fail to win people's hearts. And why people who go on TV today, they go on the internet, they condemn our nation, they condemn a church, any church, they condemn the church. Those people will always fail to win people's hearts. Listen, anybody can critique people. Anybody can critique a church. Listen, I work in one. I can critique this one. Man, that's easy. Low-hanging fruit, friend. Anybody can do that. What's harder and rarer is to love the church. What's harder and rarer is to love what you're a part of. See, the critiquers may be right, but being right never changes anyone's heart. See, here's the thing. The Jews, they were the moral majority of their day, right? They were right about Zacchaeus. Was he a traitor? Yes. Had he rejected their nation, abandoned them, had he sold them all out? They were right. They were right. Had he betrayed their values? Had he betrayed their country? Yeah. But did their being right change him? No. What did? The experience of adoption. Jesus offered him. Being brought in, accepted. See, that's what changes people. In her new book, called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Syracuse professor Dr. Rosario Butterfield, maybe you've heard of her, traces her path from skeptic to follower of Jesus, and she talks about how her life was changed through a powerful experience of being accepted by another Christian. And her book, which is her memoir, it's her story in her own words of coming out of the lifestyle of lesbianism and in the Christianity begins like this is how she opens the book and it's fascinating. These are her words. She says this, quote, My life as I knew it became train wrecked in April of 1999 at the age of 36, just a few weeks shy of 37. At that time, I was an associate professor at Syracuse University, recently tenured in the English department, also holding a joint teaching appointment in the Center for Women's Studies. That means she's smart. I was in a lesbian relationship with a woman who was primarily an animal activist and a nature lover and also an adjunct professor at a neighboring university. Translation, they were both smart. Together we owned homes, cohabitating in both life and in the university's domestic partnership policy. We supported a lot of causes, AIDS healthcare, children's literacy, sexual abuse healing, and disability activism. We were members of a Unitarian Universalist church where I was the coordinator of what is called the Welcoming Committee the Gay and Lesbian Advocacy Group. 
As a lesbian activist, I was involved in my gay community. I had drafted and lobbied for the university's first successful domestic partnership policy, which gives spousal benefits to gay couples. I had to put up with a lot of flack from the conservative Christian community for this. The closest I ever got to Christians during these times were students, and I love this, who refused to read material in university classrooms on the grounds that knowing Jesus meant never needing to know anything else. (laughs) People who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs at gay pride marches that read, God hates, F-words. After I published in the local newspaper a critique of the promise keepers for their gender politics, I received a batch of mail, hate mail and fan mail. I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, then pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kinds of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretation? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? This letter invited me to call its author to discuss these ideas more fully. It was the kindest letter of opposition I had ever received. And within a week, I called. And actually what happened was she got so much hate mail and fan mail about her article that she put them in piles on her desk. But, and then she cleared her desk, but she couldn't decide which pile to put this letter in. <laughs> Was it for her or against her? She couldn't tell. And so she cleared her desk, kept this one letter there, and stared at it for a week. And finally she called him. We had a nice chat on the phone, and Pastor Ken invited me to dinner at his house to explore some of these questions. Said I knew exactly where he lived, so I wasn't too nervous about the first meeting. In fact, I went alone. Ken and his wife, Floyd, did something at the meal that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn in a dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. We talked about our personal truth and about what made us tick. Ken and Floyd didn't, this is the key, didn't identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions of the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. It's a great story. And as it goes on, you you read about how it took two years of consistent relationship of them having her and her partner into their home before she ever even visited the church. And about how later on as she began to re-examine her worldview and the claims of Christ, she began to become convinced of the reality of the person of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And ultimately, she tells you in her own words, she broke up with her partner. She moved out and today actually is married to a Presbyterian pastor with whom she has fostered and adopted many children of her own. Now, we should ask, what changed her life? What changed it? It was what Pastor Ken gave her, right? And what was it? What was it? Come on. You know, right? You know what it was. It was acceptance, affirmation. See, two things are going on whenever you're having a conversation with someone. There's a thing on the surface, right? It's about TV or politics or sports or whatever. But the real conversation is the one that's unspoken and lies underneath. And that's the one people walk away from you hearing much more loudly than whatever's on the surface. It's all about answering this one question. Do you love me? That's the question. And when Zacchaeus knew Jesus' answer, oh, it changed him. It changed him. See, the reason we can't or we don't give affection to others or acceptance to others or to our wife or the reason we can't look our children or our sons in the eye and tell them we're just proud of them for who they are is because we don't have it to give ourselves. We don't have it. See, you can only give what you have. 
only give what you have. Therefore, we must get this experience in our hearts from God. Now you may be saying, okay, Morgan, you're right. I need this for my own heart, and I need this to give to others. How do I get it? All right, last question, number three. Let's ask now, finally, how do we get this? How do we get this experience of adoption? Well, to get that, you're going to have to answer the very two odd questions Paul asks us at the beginning of the chapter, which he launches, that brings his own heart into the experience of adoption. They seem kind of odd. How can these two things relate? But nothing could be further from the truth because they are, after all, about... Out of all things, the law of God. As you'll see, Paul begins with the law and ends with the heart of God. And he asks these two questions. Let's see if we can answer them. First, he asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? All right. What he's asking is this. When God gave the law to Moses, uh, when he gave the Ten Commandments, when he gave the rules and the stuff people today either don't like or reject or just don't understand, when God gave Moses those laws, did it change or undo what God had already promised to Abraham? Now, we heard last week uh, from Pastor Brett, and again, here from Paul uh, about a reference that God, a promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis 15, that salvation was by grace alone and faith alone, and that God adopts us into his family because of his own goodness alone and not our own. And now Paul is holding up these two things that seem very different, rules and grace, and asking, has God changed his mind? God promised Abraham first that he would save the world by grace alone. And then later he gave the law to Moses and told the people to relate to him through the law. What's going on? Did God change his mind? Here's Paul's answer. May it never be or heck no. Right? For if a law, he said, had been given, which was able to give life saved by grace, then righteousness would have been based on the law. So the answer to that question is no, no, no. No, God hasn't changed his mind. Salvation's always been by grace. But now you've got to ask the second question, which Paul asked. Well, then why the law? Why did God give it in the first place? And the answer is a bit in your face, actually. It's a bit aggressive. Why did Paul, excuse me, why did God give the law? Well, Paul tells you twice. He gives you a little phrase here. He said, God gave you the law to shut you up. Verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe, who believe. In other words, God gave you the law, the most perfect moral law, the epitome of morality to show you you can't keep it and to shut you up when you insist you're fine and okay just how you are and you don't need a change and you don't need a savior and right now you're thinking, okay, man, I liked all the other stuff about acceptance and affirmation. I don't like your tone now, Morgan. What are you doing here, right? You're turning. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm doing what Paul is doing, I hope. I'm pressing your heart with the law to get you to see why the promise of grace is so great. And Paul is saying, God gave you the law to show you how bad you are at keeping it. And you know this, by the way, because your problem is not that you don't know what to do. You always know what you ought to do. Your problem, my problem, is that I don't do it. You don't do it. And God says, that's right, you don't do it, but it's actually worse. You can't, excuse me, you don't do it because you can't do it. But the promise of grace, the promise and the truth of the gospel is this. There is one who did. There is one who actually fulfilled the law and lived a perfect 
perfect life of law and love. But he got for that what you and I deserve, being cast out of God's family, being rejected as a son, being cursed and crucified on a cross, so that now we could come home to the Father's heart, be adopted, be sons, daughters, be heirs, get our inheritance, and obey the law now, not out of duty, but out of delight for the perfect Father whose heart is only for us. See, why the law? Oh, Paul is showing you It shows you a savior. He calls it a tutor. It's the greatest teacher of all to show you actually how much you need and how great Jesus is. So where does this begin? How do you, what what it brings it about, it's this. It begins by receiving the thing that the son in the story of the prodigal son got. Remember that story? The story Jesus told. Oh, it's another case study of adoption. The greatest parable Jesus told of a son who rejected his father, who abandoned his father, who took the inheritance and squandered it with wild living and then turned and came back home. And as he came back home, the father met him on the road. And what did the father give him? The story tells us in Luke 15. It says the father came, he ran and he kissed him. He kissed him. The father's kiss. See, that was the sign, the ultimate sign of acceptance. And it's what we and you and I can have today too, the father's kiss. There's a great story about how this works. Author Brendan Manning, a former professor and then a pastor, he's passed away recently, but Brendan Manning told the story, an unforgettable story about a young man named Larry Mullaney. Brendan was a teacher at the time in Ohio at a university, and Larry Mullaney walked into his office. Larry was, by society standards, considered ugly. He was short, extremely obese, had terrible acne, a bad lisp, bad hair, dressed poorly, and smelled badly. And he walked into Brennan Manning's office and introduced himself as an ethnogstic. It's because of his lisp. You're a what? Brennan asked him. An ethnogstic. All right. But when Larry went back for Christmas at home that year to Providence, Rhode Island, to be with his family, it was more the same. Larry's dad was what other Irishmen called a lace curtain Irishman, which meant that even on the hottest day of the summer, a lace curtain Irishman would never come to the dinner table without a dark pinstripe suit and a starched white shirt buttoned up and a tie all the way to the top. One allow his sideburns to grow down, and he always speaks in a low, subdued voice. Well, Larry comes to the dinner table that first night back from college, smells terrible, looks terrible. He and his father have their usual fights over everything, and several nights later, when he can't take it anymore, Larry informs his family he's got to go back to school the next day. What time, son, asks his father. Six o'clock, answers Larry. Father says, well, I'll ride the bus with you. And the next morning, the father and son ride the bus to the airport in silence. They get off one bus as Larry has to take a second bus, catch a second bus to get to the airport. And as they get off the first bus, standing directly across the street are six men standing under an awning who all work in the same textile factory as Larry's father. They see Larry and they begin making loud and degrading remarks about him. They say stuff like, oink, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed of him. Another man said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast. He wouldn't know whether he was on foot or horseback. Hey, kid, fat boy, give us your best oink. And the taunting continued. They went on and on. And seeing this then, for the first time in Larry Mullaney's life, at that moment, his father reached out 
and embraced him, kissed him on the lips in front of those men and said loudly, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I am so proud that you're my son. Now, it'd be hard to describe in words the transformation that took place in Larry's life. He went back to school, began to clean his life up, began to shower, became president of his university, excuse me, fraternity, graduated at the top of his class, and later, later he came back to Pastor Brenning Manning's office one day, the professor at the time, and he said this. He said, tell me about this Jesus. After six weeks of meeting with him, Larry said, okay. And he gave his life to Christ. And Larry Mullaney went into the full-time ministry. To this day, served as a missionary in South America, not because of six weeks spent in a pastor's office, but because of one moment of love and acceptance from his lace-curtain Irishman father. See, what did he get? He got the father's kiss. The father's kiss. And it changed him. And when you get that, when you come, even though your repentance may be bad, listen, the prodigal son's repentance was terrible it was horrible the father cuts him off halfway through he can't even get it right he says no you're my son here's the kiss here's the robe here's the ring here's the calf you get it all not because of what you've done but because of whose you are you're my son and when you get that church oh it changes you it's what Zacchaeus got the son got Dr. Butterfield got it's what we can get as well in our hearts right now as we close in prayer let's go to him and ask him for that can we do that yeah let's pray Lord we come this morning Lord and I'm praying that every person here would know not only that you love them but you like them that you made them you made them for you you made them for your heart You made them for your family. Lord, would you speak and minister to that to us today? Lord, our hearts would cry out, Abba, Father. If you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I've never known God like that, but I want to. I want to, starting today. Would you raise your hand? We pray for you, yeah. Yes, Lord, I thank you for these. Lord, I'm praying as they come and as they to cry out to you like this. Oh, that moment of sonship. It would trump every negative word. It would trump every bit of rejection. Every bit of distance they may feel from their own father or mother or family. Lord, I'm praying for that. Lord, we can get from you what others fail to give just because they're people. And if you're here this morning, second group, you say, you know what, it's just, I believe this, it's just been a long time, honestly, since I've encountered God like this. But I want to today. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to experience this adoption now. Lord, I thank you for these. Thank you for these. Actually, let's all, as we sort of transition here, sort of move towards our clothes, would you all stand on your feet this morning? Would you stand on your feet this morning? Just As you do this, would you pray this with me? Say, Abba, Father, thank you for adopting me. Thanking you for bringing me home to your heart. Would you meet me now in this place? In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.